0: Bards. Dearly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father. Thank you especially for this morning's celebration, a celebration of a victory, a victory that you ordained from eternity past through your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, as we partake in this morning's goings-on and as we break the very bread of life together, Father, we just ask for your blessings and your continued guidance in our thoughts as we ponder things beyond human comprehension, things that you've planned out to our benefit. Father, thank you so much for your mercy and your grace and your love. Thank you for making a way for each one of us to spend all of eternity with you. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, therefore, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt, to make a celebration like this morning even a reality. Father, we ask for your blessings on this morning's message. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, I'm going to have to speak at about this level, so just um, bear with me. I wanted to start um, with a text that I received from my beloved wife, Tammy, this past week. Um, And I just thought I'd share it with you all. It was really appropriate. Uh, She was quoting Isaiah 53, verse 5, that reads, But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. And she wrote, it's funny, but so often we can just read over his words and never truly stop to digest what they mean My heart is overflowing at this moment with an abundant gratitude. Life in Christ is about so much more than our own salvation and blessings. I believe true blessings have nothing to do with us personally, but with seeing his work and love flow from us into the laps of others. Just thought I would share. Thank you. And so I thought I'd share that with all of you as we open up our celebration for Resurrection Sunday. The question on the table, of course, which I believe is the question every Resurrection Sunday is, what is Resurrection Sunday and why do we celebrate it? So I want to read a passage now that describes to us the true meaning of today's celebration and it's not the easter bunny and candy or even gathering together as family as so many do go to First Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 15:1 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1 Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. Up here on the board, that phrase, in vain, to Paul, the apostle who wrote this, Christ's resurrection was fundamental To his faith. And he was saying that if Christ wasn't resurrected, then our faith is worthless. If Christ wasn't resurrected, then our faith is worthless. So this is the linchpin of this entire chapter in the Word of God. So for starters, today's celebration ought to be a very somber pause, if you would, in our fast-paced lives. Verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. And that means that the Old Testament prophesied it, of course. And I think in our fast-paced thinking, we tend to forget about how very ancient the gospel of Jesus Christ actually is. This is an ancient reality up here on the board on the ancient truth. The gospel transcends human history as we think of it, for it was planned by God from eternity past. God has always known that his creatures would fall and that he would save them. There was never a time where salvation wasn't an option, for God is immutable. And the Son of God has always wanted to die for us. That's the ancient truth. It's always been this way. Hebrews 13.8 Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, and forever. Think about that. The Son of God has always wanted to die for you. I remember back in the day when I used to teach prep school. I used to say, if you were the only person on the planet, he would have died for you. That's how personal it is. And he would have been no less victorious in his resurrection if it was just for you, just for your justification. Before our minds stretch even further into the truth of this morning's celebration, let us ponder one simple truth. And again, this is ancient truth, my friends, up here on the board. Jesus Christ has always been our Lord and Savior. He is that person of the Godhead uniquely as the Son of God and the Son of Man. He owns all the titles, including Victor, and deserves every last ounce of love and respect that he demands from us. Again, Jesus Christ has always been our Lord and Savior. He is that person of the Godhead uniquely as the Son of God and the Son of Man. He owns all the titles, including Victor, and deserves every last ounce of love and respect he demands from us. And I'll show you Romans 5.17 in a moment. The resurrected Christ, then, is everything to us the very means of our salvation, even. And this morning's celebration, then, is about a victory. A victory over death itself. Accomplished by one man, and then shared with others. Up here on the board, I'll give you the amplified, classic version of Romans 5.17. For if because of one man's trespass, lapse, or offense... Death reigned through that one, and that's Adam, of course. Much more, surely, will those who receive God's overflowing grace, unmerited favor, and the free gift of righteousness, putting them into right standing with himself, reign as kings in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Hold your thumb. Go to John 8:54. hold your thumb there. We're going to go back. Go to John 8, 54. Today is a celebration. But it's good to know what we're celebrating because my fear is that most Christians even have no idea. Most Christians are too busy picking eggs out of bushes and lying to their own children about fictitious characters that are meant to rob Jesus Christ of his own glory. John eight fifty four. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. This is ancient Good news, my friends, up here on the board, the great I am. Jesus is so immense that even death could not contain him. We believers are resurrected to life for one reason. Jesus conquered it, paving the way for his own. Again, Jesus Christ is so immense that even death could not contain him. We believers are resurrected to life for one reason. Jesus conquered death, paving the way for his own. Romans 6 4 appear on the board. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Without the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have no hope in the future. And this is the basis of our celebration this morning. Without the death and especially the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we'd have no hope in the future. Eternal life would be merely a figment of our imagination as we'll see a little later in this precious passage of holy scripture 1 Corinthians 15:19 if we have hoped in Christ in this life only we are of all men most to be pitied and this is the argument go back to 1 Corinthians 15:3 now this is the argument that the apostle Paul needs to develop because as most of you know in context There was a disease in the church, if you would. There was an infection from without that had been permeating within even. And Paul was, being the shepherd he was, on guard and saying, do not believe these lies about there is no resurrection. Do not take offense at the resurrection, especially of our Lord, because without that, we are to be pitied. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And that's from that Greek phrase, uk, imi, uh, hekanos" up here on the board. I am not fit. It means not sufficient, able, or worthy. In context, Paul was saying that he depended wholly upon God's grace, poured out through Christ to assure him of his salvation. He said, I'm not fit to even be doing this thing. Who am I? Who am I? That's one of those songs that I love, one of the Christian songs that I love, Who Am I? If we share in Paul's unfitness then we understand grace. If we, un- if we share in Paul's unfitness, then we understand grace. See, because you cannot, as the Spirit's been teaching from this pulpit now for years, you cannot understand grace unless you're humble. To an arrogant person, the grace of God is nothing more than another Easter egg put in a basket that's already overflowing with things that are going to rot your teeth. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Charles Spurgeon up here on the board. Learn this lesson, not to trust Christ because you repent, but to trust Christ to make you repent. Not to come to Christ because you have a broken heart, but to come to him that he may give you a broken heart. Not to come to Him because you are fit to come, but to come to Him because you are unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. Again, verse 9, Paul says, For I am, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit. And that's what the Spirit wants to impart to you. Everything that I just read to you, a nice friendly reminder of what fitness means. And that's why I like what Spurgeon says. Your fitness is actually your unfitness. Because if you think you're fit, you're not fit. Because that's arrogance. As soon as you understand that you're not fit, that's your fitness. Then God has something to work with. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove in vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, which is the truth, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Up here on the board, Romans 4:25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was proof that God had accepted his sacrifice, that God would be just in justifying the ungodly. Take that away, what do you have? And that's Paul's point. Christ's resurrection is our proof that God is satisfied with Jesus' substitutionary atonement on the cross. Therefore, to challenge the resurrection of Christ is to jeopardize the veracity of the gospel itself. So you can see why Satan has always wanted this kind of disease to infect the churches. So Paul deals with it logically, as he often did. In essence, he met lawyering with his own brand of logic. Up here on the board, Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents. In other words, know your enemy. And that's what Paul was doing. He knew his enemy and he knew his tactics. So be shrewd as serpents, know your enemy. And innocent as doves, know your Lord. Know why you're protecting what it is you're protecting. So this is the context of the passage at this point. Paul's protecting the flock of God against disease. Any good shepherd worth their salt is going to do that very thing. Verse 13. So he says, Okay, let me entertain you for a moment, O diseased ones. But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is also vain, because Jesus and God would be liars. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. We have a lot to celebrate, my friends. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Paul's continuing to build up the to the phrase, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied, which is really a declaration of hopelessness, of utter despair. I mean, put that into perspective. If the logic works out that we've only hoped in Christ in this life only, and we're to be among men most pitied, and that we are, our faith is worthless and we shall die in our sins. Um, I don't know about you, but what's more desperate than that? What's more hopeless than that? Up here on the board. If we don't have life in Christ, if Christ stayed in the grave, I guess, if he never overcame death itself, and therefore, we don't have newness of life. We can't walk in that thing. We're not made alive in Christ. If we don't have life, then you know what we have? Death. Death. If we aren't resurrected because Jesus failed to conquer death itself, then what hope do we have in this life? None. None. And that's all Paul is saying. If Jesus didn't conquer death, our faith is worthless. We might, not as, we might as well not even celebrate this morning. Because what's there to celebrate? Life on this ridiculously crummy earth, and then you die? Never to overcome death, never to be resurrected? What kind of hope is that? I don't know about you, but this life is less than perfect. Is that fair? Challenging? Should I use more euphemisms this morning? Less than lovely? Let's continue. Verse 16. This is the argument he's developing. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, you are still in your sins, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. And that's from Elianos up here on the board in the Greek. Pitied, pitiable, wretched, in great need of mercy because desperate. In context, our only hope is null and void. If he was never resurrected, we have no hope to be resurrected because he is the first fruit in the resurrection itself. He's the one who paved the way. He's the one who overcame death itself. He's the one who holds the keys. If none of that's true, what hope do we have? Finally, Paul turns from being shrewd as a serpent, knowing his enemy, that's what he was doing, to innocent as a dove, knowing his Lord. Verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, and that's his conviction. That's him knowing his Lord, knowing that God is not a liar. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep for since by a man came death Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Hold your thumb again, go to Romans six three. Romans six verse three. <clears throat> Romans 6.3 <clears throat> Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, go back to verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, <clears throat> Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's that is coming, then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And just for the sake of time, I want to jump forward in this passage. Go to verse 54. 54. But when this perishable, speaking about the earthly body, when this perishable... By the way, is anybody else's body really just decaying into like oblivion? I'm serious. It's unbelievable. I wake up every morning, I'm like, what just happened? I'm expecting like my hip to be on the floor. You know what I'm saying? I gotta like pick up my teeth over there and my whatever. Like I'm expecting body parts to stop falling off. Anyways, I digress. But that's what it means to be perishable. This body is is just wrought with sin nature, right? It's wrought. It's just decaying. We can't expect a whole lot out of this thing. It gets worse and ends up in the grave, thank God. And then thank God He gives us a resurrection body. But when all that, when this perishable, this earthly body, will have put on the imperishable, that's a resurrection body, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Paul is referencing Old Testament scripture, of course. Hold your thumb, and let's grab the cross reference real quick. Go to Isaiah 25, verse 8. Isaiah 25, verse 8. Death is swallowed up in victory. Again, that's what we're celebrating here this morning. We're celebrating a victory, a victory over death itself. Because that's what resurrection is. Isaiah 25, 8. The grave cannot keep us, you see. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces. And he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God, for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in His salvation. That's the cross-reference. Okay, go back to verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15. You see, even the Old Testament saints had this same hope. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And that's a cross-reference to the, to the point on the board, or the passage on the board, Hosea 13:14. Shall I ransom them for the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your thorns? O Sheol, where is your sting? Again, verse 55, that's the cross-reference. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Let me quote from William MacDonald on this up here on the board. Death would have no sting for anyone if it were not for sin. It is the consciousness of sins unconfessed and unforgiven that makes men afraid to die. If we know our sins are forgiven, we can face death with confidence. If, on the other hand, sin is on the conscience, death is terrible, the beginning of eternal punishment. I am around people often that are unbelievers, and that is literally what I see in their eyes. They're like scared little children. They're afraid. Why? Well, first of all, there is no fear in true love. And when you're in God's loving embrace, you're not afraid of death. But I see the beginnings of eternal punishment. Just like we see, analogously, the beginnings of eternal life. We're given eternal life right now. We don't get it yet completely. But we have components of it we we have it and he gives us by grace glimpses of the fullness of it well unfortunately on the other side the same thing is happening people aren't in the lake of fire yet but they certainly do sense it and they're beginning to live eternal punishment right now and it's terrible Because remember, by definition, what spiritual death even is, it's separation from God for all of eternity. One more quote on that verse from Frederick Lewis Godet. The throne of death rests on two bases, sin which calls for condemnation and the law which pronounces it. Consequently, it is on these two powers that the work of the deliverer bore. Again, verse 56, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. This is our celebration who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are celebrating a victory, my friends, up here on the board. Victory in Jesus Victory of any kind implies defeat. We do not simply proclaim victory as some do, thinking heaven is the purpose of salvation. We are saved from something, death. Death has been defeated through Christ's resurrection and therefore our own. Again, victory of any kind implies defeat. We do not simply proclaim victory as something, or as some do, thinking heaven is the purpose of salvation. Salvation is not a destination. And that's news to a lot of um, professing Christians out there. It's not? No, it's really not. See, you've not had the right conversation yet with your Lord and Savior, or He's tried and you've ignored Him. But I say Jesus and I have Christian t-shirts and I listen to Love. So? So? What's that got to do with anything? And uh, Grandma Mabel back in the 50s told me I was saved. Nobody has that right to pronounce salvation on someone else. Only God can do that thing. Heaven is not the purpose of salvation We are saved from something, death. Death has been defeated through Christ's resurrection and therefore our own. And this is an awful lot to be thankful for. That is the message that Paul was conveying here and the same one the Spirit's conveying from this beloved pulpit right now. And so this morning's celebration is in keeping with our lessons over the past few years even as well. That is to say that the gospel of which the resurrection is certainly fundamental, is about overcoming death. You were born spiritually dead. Dead as a doornail. It's not about taking something dead and transporting it like Star Trek to heaven. It's not about giving something dead a ticket to a destination. It's about being born again it's about being an overcomer of death itself. It's about being resurrected with Christ himself. Which first means you have to be baptized into his death. That's the whole imagery of water baptism. You go in, you come out. Death, that was promised way back in the garden of eden go to genesis 2:16 genesis 2:16 <clears throat> i wonder how many people this morning are contemplating the reality that is genesis 2:16 and 17 even on easter because I'm pretty darn sure the Easter bunny wasn't present. Adam and the woman weren't searching for Easter eggs in the garden. Genesis 2.16 The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, You will surely die. Motimut, in the original language, up here on the board, you will surely die. Translates dying, you will die, referring to both spiritual and physical death. If you disobey me, you will die spiritually and physically. Those are realities that didn't exist even. Before the fall, this is what we are saved from a dominion, not a destination like hell. We are not saved from a destination, we are saved from a dominion, and it's called death. Up here on the board, salvation is not a destination. Christ wasn't resurrected to conquer hell, okay? Christ was not resurrected to conquer hell. Rather, he was raised to conquer death itself. We belittle his work on the cross and his subsequent victory over death if we suppose such things. Yet that is precisely what many so-called Christians believe. Christ wasn't resurrected to conquer hell. He conquered death itself. And that is a different bit of contemplation. It is a different thing to ponder. It is a different thing to wrestle with to agonize over, to use the original language. I've said this in the past, and I'll say it again. That's one of the wonderful blessings about the book of Genesis. I mean, look, at we just went back to the very first book, the second chapter in the good book. And it's mind-blowing. How simple the gospel actually is. It's mind-blowing how simple the gospel actually is. So that's one of the wonderful blessings with the book of Genesis. Anytime we lose our compass, so to speak, we just have to go back and read the first three chapters of the first book in the Bible. I do it incrementally because it's like a level set. It's, you know like when you've been on the road for so long and the wheels start balding out and you know you've been over so many potholes and they start towing in and you're like and you go back to the book of Genesis and it's like having your entire car new tires and alignment. And you're like, "Oh, okay." But Most Christians I see, if they're even Christians for real, are in jalopies flying down the road because they got to get to work. Kids hanging out of the side. Baby on board, is that why you're doing 80? Is that why you just cut me off in your ridiculous minivan that's about ready to explode? Heaving and hoeing. Get out of the way, baby on board. Kids are... It's unbelievable. That's what most Christians look like spiritually. Nobody's even celebrating the right way anymore. Resurrection Sunday. It's about all the wrong things. It's about waking up and getting candy. Or waking up and looking for that meal that you're going to go to with family. And that's your focal point. Ooh, it's Easter. Yay, Easter dinner. Yay, what i we're gonna have ham hock or is that even a food? Is ham hock a food? Thank you, Brenda. Thank you. I don't know what it is, but it's edible, according to Brenda. Oh, when are we gonna have that? I think I think the focus is wrong. I, I, I just read in Genesis 2 that dying you shall die. Wait a minute, hold the Hold the turkey. Dying, I'm going to die. Is there a real problem here? I thought I had a free ticket to heaven here. I thought I had to do is just say this little salvation prayer over here. This just got real serious. I know. And for those of us who have been through the ringer, so to speak, we have a lot to celebrate because we get to look back with clarity, with gratitude. So anytime we lose our compass, so to speak, we just have to go back and read the first three chapters of the first book in the Bible. And when we do, we are quickly reminded of what salvation is all about and why we need God's grace and mercy so desperately. And it's when we are rightly oriented to truth that we begin to cling to godly motivation, when we begin to truly live for Christ and for others when we begin to truly rejoice the way the Word encourages us to. Go to First Thessalonians 5, verse 1. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. We have a lot to be thankful for, my friends. Sometimes I feel like running around outside, but I'm afraid of what the neighbors might do. First Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5:1 Aren't you grateful? Come on. Aren't you grateful? First Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5:1 Now as to the times and the epics brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, Then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains, upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you and the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, so that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. And what does it say? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete, without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. All right, let's take it back. Take that back with us to our primary passage before we close and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Go to 1 Corinthians 15:56. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And to close with one final point, a repeat. Victory in Jesus. Again, victory of any kind implies defeat. We do not simply proclaim victory as some do, thinking heaven is the purpose of salvation. We are saved from something, death. That is what we are victorious over, being made alive in Christ forevermore. Death has been defeated through Christ's resurrection, and therefore our own. So to answer the question posed at the outset of our message this morning, what is Resurrection Sunday, it seems we have found our answer, as we always must do in the Word of God. Amen? All right, DJ, come on up. Uh, Gentlemen, pass out the elements. We're going to celebrate communion service together.
1: Good morning. It's funny how the spirit talks to people. First of all, I want to thank you guys and the pastor for allowing me to speak before you on such a humbling occasion as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But it's funny that he wanted to bookend in the beginning and the end of class with Isaiah 53. Tammy brought it up with the text to Pastor, Pastor read it, and then he had me put it this morning at 4 o'clock in the morning in my notes to read to you. So there has to be an importance with Isaiah 53. The title is Importance of the Lord's Supper. So I went to Luke 22, and I read the passage this morning, and I'm going to read it to you. Then came the first day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus said Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, so that we may eat it. They said to him, Where do you want us to, to prepare it? And he said to them, When you have entered the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house that he enters and you shall say to the owner of the house, the teacher says to you, there is a guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large furnished upper room, prepare it there. And they left and found everything just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover. The Passover will become a feast of the past after this night after the Lord has supper with the disciples. and Why does it become that way? Well, a little history on the Passover is the lamb that had to be slain was about a year old, without blemish. It was the cream of the flock, per se. And the Jewish people would bring their sacrifice to the temple and put it on the altar. Then they would place their hand on, on the sheep or the, or the lamb and bear down all their weight on the lamb. And as they did this, the priest would come by and slit the throat. The blood would flow and the sins of the family would be transferred to that animal for a year. This is what the Old Testament had to do. But then then comes the suffering servant. I'm going to do my best. Isaiah 53 Who has believed our message? And to whom has his arms of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrow, and he was acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed All of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silenced before his shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living for the transgressions of many people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was rich. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the Righteous One, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many, and it interceded for the transgressors. This passage in Isaiah was just read, that was just read together, has been completed. And this ritual our Lord and Savior has abolished with his body on the cross 2,000 years ago. It was by his blood that he shed, and that blood atoned our sins forever. For whomever believes in his person. This is why we are commanded to participate in the Lord's Supper and hold it in a very highly esteemed position. Finally, I was reading this morning in the book of Acts, chapter two, the 42nd verse. This is what the new converts did. They were continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So they were in the word of God and in the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread, and to prayer. This is a very solemn ritual that we've been bestowed upon us because it signifies the Lord's death and what it means to us. And as we come together and take parts of the elements, the bread and the wine, let's think about our Lord's death and what He did for us and how He was crushed for our iniquities as it is stated in Isaiah 53. So 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-three. For I received from the Lord that which is also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us eat the bread. And in the same way, he took the cup. Also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it and in remembrance of me. In remembrance of our Lord, let us drink the cup. For as often as you eat and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's bow our heads. Thy Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as your children and have a message about your resurrection and what we are celebrating today, but also the privilege of being able to come together and have this ritual in our hearts, that we remember his death. Father, we thank you for all the people that are here today. May their hearts be enlightened. May the grace and truth and love from you come to, into their hearts. And Father, we also ask that you take all that was learned today and bring it out into a lost and dying world as we are commanded to spread your gospel, the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we ask for travel and mercies as people leave and they go to their families. May they have peace and prosperity and may they think about you and all the things that were done for us over 2000 years ago today. Father, we ask all of this in your son's precious name and through the power of your spirit we do pray. Amen. We're going to have another song.